Hello again, everyone. This is Mike Flanagan. On this episode of the Inside Bowling Show, we welcome the greatest right-handed bowler of all time, Walter Ray Williams Jr. On this show, we do take some time discussing the protests in America and participate in Blackout Tuesday by offering 60 seconds of silence in our open. Walter weighs in on his thoughts regarding the George Floyd murder, and we then dive into Walter's career in bowling and horseshoes. It was a real honor talking things over with him, and I think you're really going to enjoy this one. This show, if you found it by now, is broadcast live on Facebook and YouTube, and you should head over to those accounts by searching Inside Bowling to watch the program and check our schedule for future episodes. If you're really enjoying our show, do us a favor and subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. It would mean a great deal if you did. If you really like what we're doing here, you can head over to Inside Bowling and save 15% off our merch with coupon code IBSHOW. Elements from today's show were intended for both video and audio, and we apologize if at some point in the show you can't quite follow along. This is a great reminder that all of our shows are archived on our YouTube channel. This is our 37th episode, and we hope you really enjoy this one with Walter Ray Williams Jr. So 37 here on the Inside Bowling Show. Mike and Matt here with you on this wonderful Tuesday. And uh, we've got three shows uh, left after this one here this week. Today we have the great Walter Ray Williams Jr. on the program and uh, doing some bio work on doing some background on Walter. Not that I necessarily need to do any, but uh, this guy's won 115 times on professional bowling tours, Matt. Um, we're going to make an argument today. Uh, is, is he the greatest bowler of all time? Um, and we're going to talk about those things because I don't think the guy gets enough respect, um, personally, but, uh, looking forward to the program here today. Uh, Matt, obviously, uh, yesterday we let off the program with, uh, it was difficult to do a show yesterday with all the things that happened over the weekend, uh, in regards to, uh, George Floyd and what happened in Minnesota. And, uh, yet late yesterday, uh, it was kind of decided in, uh, in the media world that it was, you know, it was blackout Tuesday where just people wouldn't post on social media. We're just putting a black thing on the screen. Uh, you and I have both uh, decided to wear black hats today on the program and not cancel the show. Um, we thought about canceling the show. Both of us did uh, to honor what's right in America. Um, but we elected to go on with the show. Uh, so we are participating uh, in a couple of things in our own way to try to uh, show our support um, for what's going on in the world right now. So we're wearing black hats today. And also we noticed uh, it's in the radio industry. Uh, you actually brought this to my attention, Matt, that it's uh, show must pause day. Um, a lot of shows are taking off today, but we have something that we wanted to do today. 
And Matt, what is that that we'd like to do today? Uh, well, we wanted to put up a, uh, a, a black screen for a, uh, for a minute or so, showing our support for Blackout Tuesday um, and for the show's must pause. So for for 60 seconds here, before we get into our exciting show for the day, we're going to we're going to pause and we're going to take a step back to think about all the things that are going on right now. Very difficult time in our country. It's our way to show support. Um, probably the hardest thing we'll ever transition out of, but uh, let's try to do what we can. And let's uh, let's bring up yesterday's Bowler X poll question, Matt. Yesterday, we had Executive Director of the United States Bowling Congress, Chad Murphy, on the show. And we asked him, we asked our audience, which of the following is the most important member benefit offered by the United States Bowling Congress? Certified averages, tournaments, rules, or equipment specifications, and leading is rules at 41.5%. Second, certified averages at 33.8%. Third, tournaments at 18.5%. And equipment specifications, 6.2%. Today, our guest is Walter Ray Williams Jr., and uh, we have a poll question uh, related to Walter Ray here today, don't we, Matt? We sure do. Uh, today's poll question brought to you by BowlerX.com is what is Walter Ray Williams Jr.'s best accomplishment? First choice, $4.9 million in earnings, 115 professional titles, won a title in 17 consecutive years, so he won a title 17 years straight, or the fact that he's in both the Horseshoe and Bowling Hall of Fames. That's right, and that's USBC Hall of Fame, PBA Hall of Fame, and I'm sure he's in, he's, I got, he's got to be in some association Hall of Fames and the uh, horseshoe hall of fame. So, uh, pretty, pretty cool stuff there. I mean, when, uh, that's going to be hard to pick. I mean, those accomplishments are unbelievable. Um, so yeah, everybody, uh, we are proud to have Walter Ray on the program today. Just a little background. Um, you know, being a St. Louis guy, obviously I have this really strong relationship with Pete Weber. Um, and Pete, Pete and I have been friends for a long, a long time. And whenever, you know, Walter and Pete, they, they battled each other on the lanes and, you know, it's no secret. I was, I was rooting for Pete, you know, I was rooting for Pete. Then I remember I was working at, uh, at fair lanes, uh, at the time was the name of it. AMF St. Louis lanes. We talked about it and there was a Friday night that, uh, our youth league bowled. We had the scratch league that bowled on Friday nights and, uh, Pete came up with Tracy and, Walter Ray walked in on a Friday night and I was about like 16 years old 
And I'm like, oh my goodness, what is Walter Ray doing here? And he was staying, I, I guess he was staying with Pete for, I don't know, a couple of days between stops or something. And he came in and he bowled. He bowled on a Friday night, like right when our youth league was done. And he let all of us talk to him, BS with him. And he was just trying to get some practice in that night. But he was so nice. Like, you know, and that was my, that's my first, my first dealings with Walter, right? And then over the years covering bowling, I worked for Storm. Walter wasn't on Storm staff, so I didn't get to interact with him too much. Just a little bit. Just, hey, nice bowling today, Walter. Thank you, you know. And then, and then I, I went to work for uh, Ebonite International, and Walter wasn't on that staff. He was with Brunswick that whole time. And I didn't get to, 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 to be with him very much and establish that relationship. No ball videos being shot or anything like that. Lucky for Walter. Lucky for Walter. <laughs> right, exactly. But then, you know, I got to go to La Raza last year and bowl the La Raza tournament, and Walter was there. And I had no idea he was going to be there. And I got to cross with him for a couple of days and get to know him a little bit better. Um, but, you know, going over his resume and, and being a Pete Weber fan, you know, I've, I've glossed over Walter over the years a little bit. I mean, there's just no surprise. There's no secret to it. And to have him on our program today and dive in and ask him the questions that I've never really been, been able to ask him as well as you, Matt, I'm, I'm really looking forward to this one today. I'm really going to cherish this moment here today. And the other great thing about Walter is, you know, he's 60 years old now, right? And we, we've had Marshall Holman try to get prepared for this this show, and it took him forever to, to get you know any technology working. But Walter yesterday fired up no problem uh, yesterday on our test. So um, he's he's got it going on. I mean, this guy he 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 can pretty much do anything anything he puts his mind to. That's for sure. He even told me he was doing some shows. But uh, you know, I've got a whole sheet here of all this information about Walter Ray. And uh, we're going to go over some of it, but I think I think the things that that are that are most important here is the 115 uh, combined titles, 47 on on the main tour, uh, seven time player of the year, seven times, uh, three times senior player of the year, um, 14 titles over on that tour, um, 17 seasons in a row with a title. I mean that's unbelievable. Um, Eight majors um, on the on the on the men's tour. Um, I mean, it, how long can this guy keep going? How many titles is he going to get to? Uh, one of the greatest spare shooters of all time. Uh, PBA Hall of Fame in '95, USBC Hall of Fame in 2005, um, Player of the Year in '86. Matt, Mike, Mike, Mimi's even coming in. Mimi I know. Rolled on. She wants to hear Walter. She wants to hear from Walter. Yeah. 80, 86, he's player of the year, 93, 96, 97, 98. I mean, this, this, this stat list is unbelievable. So with no further ado, we are so pleased to have the greatest bowler of all time on our show today. Let's bring in Walter Ray. Walter, how you doing, man? Okay, we got a little bit of an audio problem here. So let's, uh, we, we can't hear you right now. Um, you got your earbuds in. Um Skip I plugged in these earphones and maybe oh. I messed it up when no, I. No, we're good now. Now we can hear you. No, that's because I unplugged them. Okay. <laughs> I'll tell you what, as long as we don't get a feedback, we'll be all right. How's that? Yeah, we sound. You sound fine to us, brother. Sound perfect. If, if we don't get the feedback, then I'll I'll do without the headphones. How's that? That sounds good. Walter, right. how are you today, sir? I woke up again. <laughs> <laughs> a couple of times. <laughs> 
Yeah, you know, there's 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 a there's a a larger thing that's happening uh, in in the United States uh, with with what happened up in Minnesota um, last week, yeah. and we debated even having a show here today. Um, do you have any thoughts about what's going on currently right now in, in our country? Um, I, I do. I, I, I mean, it's just so sad, you know, that that things like that happen, and and then you know you get the protesters, which they have every right to protest. And, you know, because I, I being a person of, you know, light colored skin, I kind of privileged here in the United States. Um, and I have, I can't imagine what it's like with somebody with darker skin, how us white people look at them, you know, how, and how they think people view them and stuff like that. And I, I and all the stereotypes that go with it. And it, it, it's just, I can't imagine it, you know, and it, being a police officer is probably one of the toughest jobs in the world, you know, but I think sometimes, you know, unfortunately you get bad cops or whatever it is and, or they go over the line, something, ha- I have no idea how, how something like that can happen. But, you know, for, for the uh, people that were working with the gentleman, you know, what happened, how they let that happen just is, I, I, I don't understand it. I, you know, so my heart goes out to the families and, you know, the people affected, you know, and I definitely think people have a right to protest. The writing, that I don't understand. I, I've never understood that. I mean, people riot after their their team wins a ball game, you know, the World Series or something. I. It doesn't make any sense. I think, unfortunately, there's too many people who, quote, take advantage of a situation like that and do things they shouldn't do. Um, and I, I, I don't understand any of that. I, I'm it just beyond my comprehension that, that they think it's okay to go destroy something or to steal from somebody because, you know, somebody died. You know, I... I and and I understand, you know, that, you know, people of color have a different perspective on that because they've been, quote, you know, dumped on their whole life, so to speak, and generations, you know, and um, it, it's, to me, it's like the writing is no better than what the police officer did. You know, I, I think they're the same thing. And I, I, I just, I, I think it's sad. And I know it's going to stop someday. I hope it stops sooner than later. Um, but uh, uh, and and for all those people that live in those communities where they're fearful for their lives and stuff, uh, it's just that's it, it's just really hard to comprehend. And I'm 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 very lucky that I live in a community where that's not a situation, you know. But I know there's a lot of people who do, and it's just sad. Yeah, it definitely is. Appreciate your perspective on that and answering that question for us today, because that is that is the that is the thing that's 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 the elephant in the room here today. Like we we had to address it coming on the show today. We took took a minute uh, for Blackout yeah. Tuesday today, mm-hmm. and uh, with that, let's uh, let's try to enjoy the show here today. It's an absolute mm-hmm. honor to have you on our program. Uh, I'm sure you heard on the open there that uh, when you were on television, I was rooting for Pete Weber, but uh, you mm-hmm. pretty. <laughs> but you pretty you pretty much didn't you own pete on tv 
I had a really good record against Pete on TV. I'm not exactly sure why, but uh, I think we met 10 times, and, and which is amazing because we were both on TV a lot. There was a lot of times we were on TV together and didn't bowl each other, but uh, I think we actually bowled each other 10 times on TV. I think six times for a title, and I think I'm 6-0 and for title matches and 2-2 two and two in the other matches, you know, which is really ridiculous when you think about it. So I was eight and two against him on TV. And that's, that's over, a, you know, basically a 25 year period. Cause I have really, we really haven't been on TV a whole lot in the last 10 years. Um, so from like 85 to, uh, to 2010 was when I made all my TV shows, basically I've had a couple before that and a couple after, but not many. And it just, uh, you know, when you think about it, all the times that we bowled and, you know, we're successful in tournaments that we only met those few times and everybody made a big deal about the rivalry. And yeah, I guess there's a rivalry, but it's a rivalry with everybody. I mean, I want to beat everybody and they all want to beat me. So there, there's always quote rivalries, but it wasn't, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't like I hated Pete. I don't think he hates me. Um, you know, and, and you're always trying to beat the best guys. And Pete was definitely one of the best pullers out there. No doubt about that. Yeah. I draw a parallel um, to another sport, uh, which is, which is NASCAR racing. And you had Richard Petty who won over a hundred races. You've won 115 total titles uh, across all the different PBA platforms that are out there. And Dale Earnhardt senior, who was the intimidator, who, who also was, was going neck and neck with Richard Petty for many years. And I view you as Richard Petty and you're, you're wearing a Ford driving school. As a matter of fact, uh, uh, one of your sponsors there, racing tie-in and Pete was Dale Earnhardt. You're Richard Petty. Pete is Dale Earnhardt. Uh, have you ever had that comparison before? That's the first one I heard about that, but, uh, <laughs> NASCAR fan. Um, I've watched it before, but, uh, I I'm, I'm actually more familiar with Richard Petty <laughs> because that's when I used to watch it was way back when and Dale Earnhardt. And, and I don't, I know they've probably raced against each other, but I think Dale Earnhardt is kind of later than bit, Richard Petty. Yeah. I think Petty was a little bit, a little bit older, and um, and that was kind of more when I was watching it was, you know, back in the seventies and eighties and stuff. Like that. But uh, um, I, you, I mean, there's lots of comparisons you can always make. Um, but you know, in bowling, it is what it is, and I, you know, I, I've had an unbelievable career. When I first started, I didn't. I didn't realize or think that it would ever be like um, And Pete got started into bowling a lot earlier than I did. I, I played horseshoes as a young boy and bowled once. I bowled for one year when I was like 11, 12. And I really didn't get into bowling until I was really about 19. I was kind of later on. And fortunately, because of my horseshoes, I think it helped me become a pretty good bowler because of that. And then... I got better and better and then finally got out of college and then went on tour. Um, so it was a uh, different avenues that we took where he grew up with a bowling ball in his hand and, you know, just, he learned all the things. And when he was 13, you know, he was, he was really, really good at 13. Me at 13, I was probably a 140 average bowler, you know, and, and even at 19, I was a 175 average bowler. But by the time I, I turned, I was averaging over 200. Wow. I, I think, you know, Matt and I talked before the show today, 
you know, and there's this argument in bowling of who is the greatest bowler of all time. And it's, it's, it's Earl Anthony, uh, obviously yourself. Um, and then there's also this mention of Pete a lot. And then you got Belmo now who hasn't completed his career. He's just, he's just about halfway through it, in my opinion. Um, in your opinion, when people bring up the greatest bowler of all time, are you the greatest bowler of all time? I, I, I consider Earl Anthony the greatest bowler. Um, and the way I look at it uh, is his dominance. He, he basically bowled 14 years on tour. He, start, he, he bowled like three tournaments in 1963, and then he went home and practiced for seven years or something like that. And then when he came back out on tour in 1970, I believe he finished second his very first tournament back and was a force right out of the gate. Um, and then was player of the year six times out of those 14 years. His last year player of the year was 19, 1983, which happened to be my first full year on tour. I got to meet Earl, actually bowled him in competition, but never on TV. My very first TV show, I, uh, I beat Tom Baker, and then I bowled Mal Acosta, the semifinal match. And if I beat, if I beat Mal, I actually bowled Earl for the title. Uh, unfortunately, I left a ring in 10 pen against Mal, and he ended up bowling against Earl, and Earl won that tournament. I think it was his 40th title, um, and he won one more a few weeks later. And then he, re he actually retired in the summer of that year, didn't even bowl the fall tour, and was player of the year, and he was 45 years old. Now, the other thing about Earl was he only bowled 14 years on tour, and he retired at 45. Now, when I first started on tour, I was 23, 1983, and... At that time, there were very, very few guys that were over 40 competing on the tour full time. And Earl was one of them. And he had the most titles by far. And, you know, so he really, he, he'd had the most um, player of the year awards and all that. So if somebody would had 50 titles, my guess is he probably would have stayed on tour and probably would have won quite a few more times. Actually won the the USBC Masters in 1984 and wasn't even bowling on tour at that time. He'd actually retired from the tour and won the Masters the next year. So Earl was quite, quite a competitor and he kind of felt like he'd done enough and just didn't want to, uh, knew he needed, he wanted, he felt like he needed to work at his game to be the absolute best that he could be and didn't want to do that anymore. He was, you know, fine. He bowled a few senior tournaments, but he also had some, you know, the one year, I think he won three tournaments, but he only bowled six tournaments on the senior tour and didn't get the player of the year because of the vote at that year. Um, and he was rather upset with it. And he basically kind of stopped bowling on the senior tour, you know, so, um, but he also wasn't bowling full time on the senior tour, you know, which is probably why he wasn't voted the senior player of the year that year. Had he been bowling full time, might've been a different story. Me, I love to bowl. I love competition. I've been in competition my whole life since I was 10 playing horseshoes. I still play horseshoes, even though I kind of suck at it. I'm, I'm pretty good, but you know, compared to the guys who are really, really, really good, they're better than I am. They're the guy who's a world champion is so much better than I am. It's stupid. Um, but uh, some of the other guys, I I'm, I'm starting to get back a little bit since we've had this uh, pandemic and I've been kind of at home and had a chance to practice. I'm still nothing compared to what I used to be. Um, but uh, I'm starting to get a little bit of it back. I don't know if I'll ever get back to where I was. Uh, people say, well, you're 60 years old. Well, in horseshoes, it's not quite, the age isn't quite as big a deal 
Um, it's me, it's more of a mental thing. I develop bad habits and getting rid of those. And I think they, that's also part of my bowling. I, I got some bad habits in my bowling. My arm swings doesn't have that nice little loop I used to have. I used to have a little figure eight in my back swing. I don't have that anymore. Now my my swing, it kind of comes up and it's it's probably about that far from my ankle as opposed to when I was, you know, that close to my ankle back in the 80s. Um, so, and, and, you know, people say, well, I don't have the rev rate and I don't have the rev rate these young guys do. And that's definitely a, but I was also pretty accurate, you know, back then. I'm not nearly as accurate as I used to be, not even close. And um, if I was as accurate as I was 15 years ago, I could probably give these guys a little bit of competition, but now I'm just, it, it because my rev rate's so low and my, ac my accuracy is negative, it's just not good. So they kind of run over me, but on the senior tour, I'm still pretty competitive with those guys and uh, the, my two-handed bowling, which some people don't like, um, <laughs> it comes into play. Yeah, it does. Walter, you gave us a lot there. Um, one thing about horseshoes, though, we do have an interactive program here, and we've had a lot of uh, a lot of comments coming in. But I got one personal as a text message here. Ask Walter Ray about Mike Stout staying in his attic with them and his brother in <laughs> for the World Junior Horseshoe Championships. Walter Ray Williams beat Mike five times. Is that true? Well, Mike Stout used to play horseshoes competitively. He was he was uh, one of the juniors that I played against. So. So we played against each other from 72 to 76. So that was five years. And I did manage to beat him every year. I, I was pretty good back then. And even though I was the last couple of years, I was actually playing the men's distance and he was playing the junior distance. I actually won one of those junior championships playing the men's distance. Um, but uh, the one year he's talking about uh, the, the horseshoe tournament was being hosted by our local horseshoe club in Eureka, California. And our house had a was a three-story house. The third story was kind of like our my 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 brothers and my playroom. My parents never went up there, and it was just basically like an attic. It was basically an attic with maybe a six-foot ceiling or whatever. And we that was our playroom. I mean, we just had a good old time there. I was thirteen. My brother was my one brother was twelve, and my my little brothers were seven, going on eight, and. And I had a cousin or two there and a couple of the horseshoe uh, boys there staying at our house. And so we're, you know, boys having a little slumber party, whatever we call it. And my brother, Jeff, who's a year younger than him, started calling everybody names. Well, he got to me. Well, I'm laying right next to him. I'm thinking, yeah, you're not getting away with this. So I'll go to hit him. So I go to hit him like this. He, his knee got in the way and I broke this finger the day before the world championships. Now, my brother was pretty good at horseshoes. But I was a little better at the time. He had never beaten me in practice or tournament. He'd never beaten me up until that tournament. And he won the world championship that year. I probably would have set all the records that year because I already had the records, but I would have broke, probably broken the records again. I, I was pitching unbelievably well for the tournament. I had one practice session. I had 193 ringers out of 200 shoes. Jeez. <laughs> so you so you blame that year on your broken pinky uh definitely and, and i can't blame it on my brother even though he called me a name it's my fault i hit him i shouldn't have done that i actually did pitch in a tournament i had to hold the shoe with these two fingers because these were taped up and i i averaged 78 percent ringers which was decent but i had to finish fourth in the junior class that year but um 
it was my worst finish at the junior championships. When I was 10, I actually finished second, uh, <laughs> which, which is kind of interesting. That's where I got my nickname, Deadeye. Um, ah, well, uh, you said you said you were at 78% that particular year, and you said you're not very good anymore right now. What are you at right now? I'm about 65 to 70%. Well, that's about 63% more than me, probably, if I were to uh, it's most people that don't play horseshoes would be lucky to get one or two out of a hundred. And Mike, Mike, Mike Stout was probably about 75%, um, maybe the higher 70% when he was competing in a junior division. So he and was we, a pro player. He, he would make the championship class, but he would finish fourth, fifth, or sixth or something like that. And so when you were at the top of your game, what, what percent were you at? Well, when I was 11, I averaged 86%. I broke the record for the highest average for the junior class at that, that year. And I was also the youngest to win it at that time. And then the next year I broke the record again, averaged 89%. Um, I've had, uh, I only had one 90% tournament as a junior. I had 94% one tournament. It was just like, everything just went good. Um, I've had uh, 13 perfect games. I had back-to-back -back perfect games when I was 11 at the state tournament against brothers <laughs> uh, and later on when I was 15 and 16 I actually played the men's distance and but I was still pitching in the junior because the juniors play from 30 feet foul lines actually 20 at 27 feet men's foul lines 37 feet so the stakes are 40 feet apart the juniors and women play 10 feet closer and when I was 15 I actually was pitching the men's distance and actually won the junior championships averaging 86 percent ringers and Ended up winning the men's division six times, and the, the best I had was 88%. The guy who's the current world champion, I interviewed him a couple weeks ago, he and his wife, uh, who's also a horseshoe pitcher, they're both in the Horseshoe Hall of Fame. Uh, he, he's got the highest, I think, eight averages of all of ever. Jeez. And I, I like number nine or 10, whichever it is. Um, but he his like he's got ninety one percent, ninety percent, ninety percent, eighty nine point. You know, 89. it's right. just amazing how good this guy is. He's won the tournament now twenty two out of the last twenty five years. He finished second those other three years. That's that's how much better he is than I am. I mean, if I if I went out if he was here and we played, say we played five hundred games, I think I'd be lucky to win one. Wow. That's how good he is. And, and you guys you guys wouldn't even have a chance against me. You you would. You wouldn't you wouldn't even be able to beat me at one in a million games. That's that's the difference, and that's how much better he is than I am. Wow, that's incredible. Now I, I really don't know what's more impressive: this accuracy that you had in horseshoes, or not missing a single pin for like fifteen years on tour. <laughs> that's well, see, that's not quite true. I the one year the PBA kept stats on that. Well, they, they do they do keep stats on it, but the one year that the first year I think they started keeping the stats. They used to only keep score in match play. They didn't keep track during qualifying rounds. Well, so they kept track in match play. So the one year they did that, I was like 457 for 457 on my single pins, you know. But I kept track of everything. I actually missed like six or seven during qualifying rounds. Why I missed them in qualifying rounds and not in match play, I don't know. But I, my percentage used to be about 99% or better on single pins which which is really pretty decent <laughs> but i i do miss them a lot more than i'm probably down to 98 and a half percent now so a little frustrating 
Bummer, yeah. man. You'll it get is. back it, there. You, every time I miss one, I, I just, I'm like, really? How stupid can you be? Because for me, <laughs> it's a matter of paying attention. All you got to do is pay attention and throw a decent shot, you know, and, you know, the best players in the world, we do miss them. Um, but uh, I've, I kind of figured out a long time ago, if you throw the ball nice and straight, you don't have to worry about the lane conditions. So one, one of the tips I give when I do clinics, I say, have you guys ever complained about the lane conditions being exactly the same? And they all will think about it. Well, no, they're always different. I'm like, well, yeah. But if you throw the ball really, if you throw it dead straight, it doesn't matter if you've got a 20 foot pattern or a 55 foot pattern, the ball's going to go straight. So if you throw it straight, you don't have to make adjustments. So, you know, it, it makes it a lot simpler. I stand same place. I look at the same place and I throw it fairly straight. Now I don't throw it exactly perfectly straight. EJ Tackett probably throws the ball straighter than I do at his bears, but I throw it fairly straight and I'm using a rubber ball, which hooks even less than a plastic ball. I'm, I'm amazed that guys use urethane because urethane actually hooks a lot right. more than plastic. And now if you throw it straighter, yeah, it's going to go straighter. But the thing is, is with me, I get lazy like everybody else. And I all of a sudden will put a little side spin on the ball. If I do that on a reactive ball, it's going to hook. So I have to really pay attention using a black diamond, man, that's just nice. It was kind of funny because they had the, uh, senior world championships last year and i they wouldn't allow me to use it because the ball was made before 1991 i'm like what that made no sense yeah yeah it was i was like wow okay whatever i did make most of my spares but i did i did end up missing three single pins that week they were all in match play and they didn't cost me any matches but it was still you know and basically because like i said I, I didn't pay attention you know didn't quite get the uh and no hook on the ball and been throwing the right spot. And that, you know, but it, it makes sense. If you're throwing a ball dead straight, all you got to do is throw a halfway decent shot. You got plenty of room for air. So. Yeah, Mike. Well, I think that's, I think that's the cure for your 50% spare shooting now. You just have to focus and throw it straighter. And you'll easily go from like 50% on your single pins to 75% uh, next time you're the lane, Mike. <laughs> I think that's yeah. a good transition. I got to bowl with Walter in, in La Raza this year where Walter lapped the field. He he outbowled everybody, including A.J. Johnson, Kyle Sherman. There were a bunch of pros there. Uh, I didn't exactly lap them, but I did I did manage to stay ahead of them. <laughs> you did. You did. And every day you just you just tore it up every single day down there. And and that was that was a that was a big moment for me to be able to cross with you. Do you remember crossing with me? And uh were you impressed with my game? <laughs> well, you hadn't bowled a whole lot, but uh, um, I mean, they're a decent bowler, but I think you were a little rusty at the time. But uh, I was probably, the, the lane conditions there probably obviously fell into my lap. The, uh, the lanes changed very quickly. And uh, after the first round, I, I basically stayed one-handed because I realized that the lanes, if I threw it one-handed, the lanes didn't change as much for me. I could make a half a board adjustment every time I threw the ball as opposed to a two-board adjustment if I was bowling two-handed or, or hooking a ball like most of these other guys. They basically had to move two or three two or three boards every time they got up to throw the ball because it was eight on a pair, and the lanes just broke down extremely fast. And even though we only bowled four games, that third and fourth game, it was amazing the moves the guys were making. And all of a sudden, you'd move a little too much, and then the ball wouldn't hook at all. And fortunately, I was able to, to make these smaller moves because I don't hook the ball as much, and it kind of played more to my benefit in that respect. 
So yeah, I kind of wish that would happen all the time on tour. <laughs> yeah, it was it was pretty awesome. It reminded me of '96, '97, and '98. Now, and I, and I want to go there now because here's the deal: uh, when people think three peat in bowling, everybody thinks Jason Couch, right, for winning the tournament of champions three times in a row. And then we just watched this uh, Michael Jordan documentary. The whole country did pretty much on Sunday nights. It was the only sporting thing that was going on. And there's a three peat there. But you were player of the year in '96, '97, and '98. What what was that run like for you? Um, anytime you're winning, that's awesome. I mean, that was a lot of fun. I mean, I was bowling, obviously I was bowling very well. I bowled, I bowled really well. Well, from 93 to like 98, those six years were really good. 94, 95, I didn't win very many tournaments, but I made a lot of TV shows. And, and before 93, I was making TV shows and not winning tournaments. I think I might have the record for the most TV shows in a row without a title. I think I might have 25. Um, so a lot of people say all oh, my success was because of reactive because I wasn't winning before with urethane. I did win, but I was also doing very, very well. And still, you know, in 1988, I made 10 shows. I, I, I think I led four tournaments and finished second all four times, you know, cause I wasn't able for whatever reason, I wasn't winning on TV and it's hard to say exactly why it was. And it was a really frustrating period in my time in my, my career because I was bowling well, but not winning. But I always thought I'm bowling well, it's going to come, it's going to come, it's going to come, it's going to come. And then 93 happens and I win seven tournaments in one year. And then after that, I mean, I was 94, 95, I was bowling very, very well, but I don't think I won one tournament the one year and two the other year. But I, if you look, I was probably first or second to points and first, you know, maybe second to money list. And I didn't get player of the year those years, but I was right there. And then 96, seven, eight, Again, you know, right there with the, uh, all the stats, money and points and average and stuff. And I think that's the other thing people don't realize. I've, I've been high average winner, I think, eight times. And I think the points leader eight times. So um, it's uh, that, that run for three years was definitely fun. Yeah, I can only imagine what it's like to just – be the most dominant player in the world for a stretch of time for a day, let alone for years uh, after year. What would you give as a piece of advice to everybody that's watching that kind of goes through what you were explaining, where you show up to the bowling alley, you feel like you're bowling great, but the pins just aren't falling. You're not winning. You're not bowling honor scores. What is your biggest piece of advice for people that are experiencing something like that? Well, in my case, it was, it was more necessarily not winning the events but I was doing very well. So, I mean, don't get me wrong. I was, I was doing very, very well. Um, finishing second is not bad bowling. It's not where you want to be. You want to win. Trust me. When I, when I would make the TV show and I didn't win tournaments, trust me, I wasn't really happy about it, but afterward I'd look back and say, yeah, I had a good week. Things, sometimes things don't happen. Not always the best player wins every week, especially when they do elimination formats. I don't even know why they do elimination formats. And unfortunately, the step ladder is an elimination format, but it makes it more exciting than coming out and watching 42 games and then the last show the last few games and total pins. A guy's running three or four pin, three or four hundred pins ahead. He's he's going to win. It's basically like a golf tournament. Um, my best comparison with that is if they took a golf tournament and at the end of 72 holes they say, "Okay, you five guys, one, two, three, four, five, you're going to play in a you're going to play in a playoff match. Four and five are going to play. You're going to play a three hole match." The winner's going to play a three-hole match against the other guy. The winner's going to play a three-hole match against the other guy. And they're going to win for the, going to go for the title playing a three-hole match. 
So basically the guy has to win it twice, which is if statistically that's exactly what we did in bowling. And it's hard for people to understand that because they see bowling on TV and they think, well, that's how bowling should be. It should have a stepladder. The reason why we have a stepladder is to make it more exciting. It's not the best way to have a tournament to find the best player of the tournament. It's, it's to find a more exciting finish because that way you get more fans and more people to watch. Um, yeah. I see what you're saying. Um, but, but the, 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 the concept that I had was throw good shots, keep throwing good shots, keep throwing good shots, keep throwing good shots. The, the more good shots you throw, the better chance you have of getting a strike. The younger players have a little different mindset as about, as about how to attack the pins than I do. My attack hit the pocket, hit the pocket, hit the pocket. Their attack is I want to hit the pocket a certain way to get the pins to go in a certain way. You know, so, and part of it has to do with the lane conditions are a little easier than they were 25, 30 years ago. Um, you know, but the, the idea is still pretty much the same. I hear people say, well, a ring in 10 is not a good shot. Okay. So is a scout a good shot? Is a trip to a good shot? Is a Brooklyn a good shot? So to me, a ring in 10 is actually a much better shot than all those other ones. They got strikes. The ring in 10 didn't. And the ring in 10, if you're a fraction to the left, a fraction to the right, you're going to get a strike. So to me, try to throw a ring in 10. It's really not that easy to do. Right. No, I'm with you. I think it's and interesting. I love lots of them. <laughs> <laughs> Probably more weak tens, but I love I love quite a few ring and tens in my life. So yeah, I think that's something that's interesting you're pointing out. A lot of people think when they when they throw a messenger across and it goes super fast and they're like, oh my god, what a great amazing shot. But people don't realize that when you're throwing messengers around, it's really evidence that your ball is placking. It's not going through the pins. Not, it's not really placking. Fortunately, they have the ball speed and the angle to get the head pin to jump over and get the 10 pin, where I don't get that as often unless I'm able to play that outside line where I can throw the harder shot. But it's for the for the modern player, the modern power players that we have on tour, that's a good hit. But for me, my ball hitting that same spot in the pocket, I'm probably going to leave that week 10. They're not. And basically because they have that extra speed, the extra angle in the pocket where the head pin bounces off the left channel, the left sideboard and hits the, goes to the right and hits the 10 pin. It's, you know, it's not necessarily a bad shot, but they're normally trying to go 10 in a pit, 10 in a pit, 10 in a pit. So that lighter shot is not quite exactly where they want to be, but it's a good place for them to be because it does get that hit. And I think that's the difference between a lot of the power players today and somebody like me who, who doesn't really get that hit very often. I do get it once in a while, but not nearly as often as they do. I get it about once a tournament where they get it, you know, once a game. I mean, I watch Kyle Troop. He does an unbelievable amount of time. And he does it even when he's throwing it straighter, which is kind of amazing. But he has such good ball speed and he has that little extra, you know, little bit of angle there because he's got a high rev rate, you know. And that the combination is what makes it so deadly, you know. Yeah, it would be interesting to see – the difference in their actual carry percentage when they hit the pocket. I know they do stats on that on the PBA, but those aren't real um, because they don't have somebody who actually charts if the ball hits the pocket. They've got a program that basically says, if you leave a seven pin, an eight pin, a nine pin, a 10 pin, it's in the pocket. It doesn't matter if it went to the nose, went Brooklyn or what. That's how that program works. And it figures if you hit the, if you get a strike, it doesn't matter if you trip the two pin or went Brooklyn or missed the head pin and got a strike. It's, it considers that you hit the pocket. So that's not really a, a very true um, system that they use saying it's a pocket percentage shot where when I track my stuff, I actually mark down, yeah, I hit the pocket because the ball hit the one and the three 
and the and the head pin hit the two pin kind of stuff, you know. And it's it's still subjective. Everybody's you know subjective about that kind of stuff. But uh, it'd be interesting to see what Jason Belmonte's carry percentage is when he hits the pocket. And it and it depends on how they're playing the lanes, you know, and stuff like that. But I got to think their carry percentage is a little better than mine. Just guessing. Walter, you, you got a memory like an elephant here. I mean, no, I you got all these <laughs> stats. I mean, you're talking about horseshoe guys. You knew Mike Stout's stats from years ago. I mean, you're, you, you, you've been charting yeah. your stuff forever. So well, I can recall stuff from the seventies a lot easier than I can from 2010. <laughs> well, I want to, I want to, I want to, I want to test you here a little bit. I want I want to go through, I want to go through a couple of, of years here on, on your, on your tour career. So 1986, well, you were okay. player of the year, 86, okay. right? I want to know what bowling balls at the time you were using that year. Do you remember? Probably the U-Dot. I used the U-Dot, I think, in my first couple of wins. Okay. And then in 93, when you were player of the year, this is when I was getting into bowling, and I was really into bowling, and I remember you bowling on television using a blue crush and then the red crush R. Was that 93? The crush R, yeah, that was the original crush ball. That was The crush R came out first, the reactive ball. The blue one came out later, and it was a urethane ball, and uh, I used that one a little bit, I, uh, but I, I used the crush R a lot more. Um, and I mean, I was like my favorite ball. I mean, I, people ask I me, the ball, and I still to this day, I still say it's a, the best ball I ever had. Um, I'm I'm really surprised that Ebonite didn't try to redo that again. Um, uh, but I think part of it may have been because the ball basically would fall apart. Um, but I did notice over the years, it seemed like the balls that fall, fell apart were the ones that actually seemed to work really good. Um, but uh, it had an interesting, I think it was a four-piece ball, and I think the material inside would actually expand a little bit. Um, so it was, uh, but it was, I mean, I did some great bowling with that ball. Um, that, was, that was a lot of fun. I remember, I think it was red ball up five, right? Isn't that what everybody Well, they, they, they used to say that later on. I think that was more in the 2000s where, where guys would say that. But I think they did say it a little bit in the 90s, but... Uh, um, I don't think it was really just because of that ball, but uh, I think later on there were some other red balls that I used, and um, a lot of guys would hook the ball a lot more than I would, so they're not playing five. They're playing 10 or 15, and I'm playing a five, six, or seven or something. I got a good shot, and I'm like, why should I change? You know, I got, I got that. Why should I do something different? And I was, you know, throwing the ball well enough and accurate enough that I could play out there. Now, you know, it looks like the tour's trying to put out a little bit of a shot on the outside, but most of these guys basically ignore it, and they just move dead left after game one. I mean, they might try it for a game or so. The only pattern they stay out on is the is the cheetah pattern, the the patterns that are really really short, where they they put a, a serious amount of wet dry on the gutter, uh, basically force the guys to play out. That's about the only time guys will play out for more than a game. Yeah. So so ninety six, ninety seven, and ninety eight. I want to touch on ninety six, ninety seven. That that was when you were with Brunswick, right? You were throwing primarily. Right. Balls. Yep. Yep. What, what what balls stood out to you during that era? Uh, the danger zone, the original danger zone, the black one. That's I, I remember doing very well with that one, and I won with a couple of the other ones. So I get people because I, I actually won with the uh, the helix, which you know was an interesting marketing. You know, it's an interesting idea in a ball that you know that part of the, the stripe on the ball was urethane, so the ball would actually kind of slide more through the edge, and then it would you know 
migrate off of there and then it would start hooking more in the back end. And I did, I did okay with it. And then it, it, a one, t- one TV show didn't work out very well. I think the very next one I won with. So, um, yeah, you were, you were cruising along there 96 and then 97 comes along. And, and for me and, and for many in bowling, that's, you know, that was the end of ABC television in, in 1997. Yeah. And yep. the tour went to uh, Fairview Heights, Illinois, St. Clair Bowl, uh, right. now home in the McKendree Bearcats. Great bowling center for bowling over the years. Matt Shellabarger, we run a tournament there, the Holiday Doubles every year. And and that was in my hometown, just on the other side of the river there. And I remember that show. And it was a culmination of so many things happening. Bo and Chris, their last show yep. uh, in my hometown. And it was you versus Pete. And I believe we have that that for you. We have a clip here, if we could bring that up, Matt, of that particular show right here. And this is you in the ninth frame uh, against Pete in the title match, the St. Clair Classic. If you want to walk us through some of this, this would be, that would be awesome. Well, obviously, being able to play the, the gutter part of the lane, that was one of my favorite places to play. Is that a combat zone that day? That might have been a combat zone. I remember doing pretty well with the combat zone also. Um, I think the danger zone was probably in 96. I mean, I can't really tell. And I think and I think Pete had a chance to beat me in the 10th frame, but threw a, unfortunately for him, threw a bad shot good for me. Yeah, one thing I noticed is that uh, your balance had gotten better over the years. Or here, here the balance is, is my little... balance is probably not the absolute best, but I was able to repeat the shots well enough. Um, you know, so it, uh, <laughs> it, even though I think my balance is a little better nowadays because I've kind of worked on it a little bit mm-hmm. to try to be more consistent, it was, you know, at the point of release, I was pretty decent. Yeah, you were just okay, I'd say, probably just okay. <laughs> I, I was. I was always very aggressive when I threw the ball. Didn't necessarily mean I threw the ball excessively hard or, or over-revved it or anything, but I always had an excessive follow-through every time I threw the ball. You can see that where my arm just comes straight up, and I always did that. And I obviously off my hand, I like that one. Yeah, so Pete can get up here in the 10th frame, and he can get a double and nine to win. Right. Um, did you think you had it won when you, when you struck out? Oh, no. I, I mean, you know, Pete's a great bowler. And, you know, fortunately, that didn't happen to shot before, you know, but he needs a double to beat me. Um, you know, I know he didn't do that. But at the time, he's a great bowler. You know, he he's <laughs> he's a great bowler. So um, had you had you bowled, bowled against Pete? And you said earlier that you're you're eight and oh against Pete in title matches. Is this six, the first I think time? six and oh. You six and zero in title matches. Oh, sorry, yeah, six and zero in title matches. Um, or, or five and zero. One of the two. It's but yeah. Had you bowled I mean, him in a title match before? I mean, but you can see he just didn't quite get the speed on it. But uh, was you know, it, and and Pete was Pete was very good at playing that line. But he, you know, nowadays you never you never see him play that. It's it's where he wants to. He likes to circle a ball. He's very good at doing that, and he's very comfortable doing that. When, when, when ABC went off at that time, when, when ABC went, went off the air at that time, what, what was it like being a tour player, knowing that, knowing that the ABC was gone? Uh, I knew that wasn't a good thing, you know, and, and kind of 
it kind of started happening in 93 when I knew that because I was on the board, the PBA's board at that time, back when players were part of the PBA and stuff, uh, I knew that they were losing yeah. money from the ABC rights and stuff because they used to get, an ex, you know, a lot yeah. of money from all the ABC shows and stuff to help. And they subsidized some of the other tournaments. And so I knew that. So I, I kind of thinking I really need to kind of step it up because, you know, I don't know how long this is going to last, you know, and, and then unfortunately in 97, it's like, now we lost ABC. So it's like, it's going to get even worse. And it basically did. Um, and, you know, it, unfortunately, you know, several things happened and, and whatever, but it, it fortunately the, the guys that, that were part of Microsoft bought the PBA and, kept it going. And, you know, now we've got uh, AMF Bullmore and hopefully they continue to make it bigger and better. Um, uh, you know, obviously what's happened in the last couple of months has been really tough on the bowling industry. I, I, you know, I, I know it's, I know it's hitting the bowling centers very, very hard, you know, and, and unfortunately the summertime is normally a bad time anyway. So this is, it's like a double whammy. Um, so hopefully things will, uh, be able to make a nice comeback, but I know a lot of the, I know the bowling industry is just being going to be hit hard. Yeah. Here on the screen, this, this photo that we have here, it's from that, from that telecast. We have it stopped on it right here. Bo and, and Chris and, and John Shankel here. What could you say about these, these guys? Uh, well, Chris, Chris was great. He, he, for some reason, he loved me from the very first time I was on TV. Um, and Bo always a good friend, always, always spoke highly of me. Um, I took him out to play horseshoes a couple times. Um, and got, I get along with Bo very well. And Chris, Chris was just a great guy. Uh, you know, and they were both in tears in this and they just, uh, they, they probably understood more about what was going on than the bowlers, you know, cause we're like kind of hopefully optimistic that, you know, well, it's going to get picked up by another network or something, which it never did. It was just on ESPN. Um, not that that was horrible, but uh, being on a national network is definitely way better. Um, so it was uh, definitely, definitely, definitely tough. You know that that last event. Over the years, you've experienced a lot. What's one of the greatest memories of professional bowling that you have? Whether it was a title or, or just something that happened on tour. I don't know. I, I would have to probably say when I first went on on tour, because here I was trying to make a living doing something I love to do. And I was very fortunate that I was able to do it, you know, cause I bowled a little bit in eight, I bowled three tournaments in 81, didn't cash. I bowled five tournaments in 82 and I actually cashed, made the finals in two of those, but I was still in college. So I'm like, well, okay, I, I think I can do this. You know, I, I, I was pretty confident that I should be able to do it. I, I didn't, I, I don't think I ever thought I would be player of the year, to be honest, because at that time, I was in Southern California, and I knew I wasn't the best bowler in Southern California. I knew I was pretty good. I was, you know, competitive in the local tournaments and, you know, able to win once in a while in the local tournaments and stuff. But I, I knew that I wasn't the best bowler in Southern California. But going out on tour and, you know, competing against the best guys in the world got me better. And But my first start on that the first uh, five tournaments in 83, I only had one check and I'm like, Ooh, boy, I don't know. And I'm putting myself out. I'd saved up money from playing horseshoes and I had, I had a contract with a horseshoe company, getting a little money from that. 
Um, I was very thrifty, living at home, not spending lots of money, didn't drink, didn't do drugs, didn't do stuff like that. So I was able to save a fair amount of money and uh, even put myself through college. And I just, it, uh, um, I, I was really lucky. The next year, the next tournament, I'm like, well, I got a horseshoe tournament. I can win that. That'll keep me going a little bit. And then I ended up leading a PTQ, cashing in St. Louis. And then the next week was Peoria, Illinois, and I made the TV show there. That was my very first TV show. And that basically made it made me set for the for the rest of the winter tour. Um, you know, but if I don't have that good finish there, it might have been a different story, you know, because I was like not quite making expenses. I was spending more than I was making. As soon as I made that show, I I, I actually had money. Now I could now I could kind of cruise along and stuff. And then making another show in the fall. In 84, I I bowled about the same, got a couple more checks, a couple more top 24s in 85. I really started bowling better, but I was still only made one TV show in 85. And I'm like, but I was making a lot of top 24s. In fact, I bowled well enough that in 84 and 85, I, I got invited to go to Japan and only the top 16, a top 14 got invited out of the pointless. So it was from 1984 and the winter tour of 85. I bowled well enough to be on the point list to be in the top 14. So, but I'd only met, had one TV show in that entire year and a half season, but I was consistently making the top 24s and, you know, having decent finishes. And I'm like, at the end of 85, I'm like, what's, what am I missing here? You know, that I, I need to do a little bit better because I was, I was doing pretty well, but I'm like, I, I need to step it up a little bit more somehow. But I was a lot of guys when they come out on tour, and even though I don't have a super high rev rate back then, I liked the lane conditions when they broke down. I was not a fresh bowler. I, I liked, I didn't like the fresh lane conditions. I liked the lanes after they broke down. I could play fifth or sixth arrow. That was, I love that. That was where I was really good. And I know a lot of young guys look at me and they're like, what? You're crazy. You don't even hook the ball. How could you play that? But back then, lanes broke down differently. My rev rate compared to the other guys on tour, a little higher than average probably back then. And I had no problem. I drifted left. I'd get around a ball return, no problem, playing fifth or sixth arrow. I loved it. I was good at that. Now, the guys on tour, they're better at that than I am, but I'm pretty decent. Um, and I, I have no problem with that. It, it just, And so I kind of figured out I needed to figure out how to bowl better on the fresh. And I think that's, that same thing goes a lot with the, the guys that come out on tour these days. They all hook the ball a lot, and they like to see the lanes break down so they can get in and, and play off of that. But the guys that are really, really good are the guys that can play off the fresh. And I think the guys that can do both, play off the fresh and play off the burn. And that's, those are the guys that are really, really good. Um, and it, it took me it, – I kind of figured out that that's what I really need to work on, work on that. And all of a sudden, I started making even more match plays more TV show. All of a sudden I made a bunch of TV shows. I went from one TV show in 85 to nine in 86 and won three of those in the player of the year. You know, in 87, I won two more tournaments in 88. I was on TV 10 times. You know? Yeah. You've been amazing at playing fall playing ball, ball from the fourth and fifth arrow, arrow right in the pocket, and playing the first arrow. First arrow, arrow ball. Ball. <laughs> out of time, I've got a final question for you here. I wanted to, to ask, what does Walter Ray like to do outside of bowling? What's your guilty? Well, I like to play horseshoes. <laughs> I mean, that's my first love. And and if it wasn't for playing horseshoes, I wouldn't be the bowler that I am. I did I didn't grow up in a bowling center. I 
Um, you know, I, like I said, I bowled one year as 11. I started bowling again when I was senior in high school. I, bowl, I started bowling league that that fall. Unfortunately, I I had appendicitis and moved to Southern California, and I didn't bowl again till the next the next fall. So I was actually 19 when I really got into bowling. Um, and but once then, once I got into it and it started getting better, it was kind of like just keep going. But I was also going to college and uh, got a degree in physics, minor in mathematics, and it took me an extra year to get out of that because uh, I was you know, probably doing a few extracurricular activities as far as playing horseshoes and bowling. So I, I, it took me a, a little longer to, to, to finish my college education in four years, but that's okay. Yeah, Walter, one last, uh, one last question for you. And this is related to your two-handed game. The two, the weight hole rate, uh, the weight hole rule, excuse me, is changing <laughs> in August. How is this going to affect you moving forward in your, in your two-handed playing? It's not going to affect me at all. I, all the, all the balls that I have that I use two-handed only have two holes in them for my finger holes. I think if uh, I think they they originally thought this rule was probably going to slow down the two-handers, it's not going to slow them down at all. If you think you need a weight hole, weight hole, and that's the only way you can bowl, well, you might as well retire because it that's all up in your head. It's not going to make a difference. I love it. I love it. Walter, it's been a pleasure spending some time with you today. We really appreciate you coming on the program, man. Thank you. Thanks, fun Walter. I know you have a lot of sponsors too that support you. Is there anybody that you wanted to give a shout out to today? Uh, well, I mean, so I'm wearing my shirt here, so I can so because I'm, I'm sometimes I forget about them, but uh, I got uh, Brunswick. Where is it? Oh, it's over here. <laughs> I'm looking at the screen backwards here. So, and then I got Poor uh, Driving Skills for Life. That's a great program uh, for. Back when I was in school, uh, driver's ed was part of the program. Now it's not. So they've got these free programs. Go to their website. If you are if you know somebody between 15 and 17 years old, great program. Uh, if they charged you for it, it'd probably be $750 or $1,000, and it's a free program. You just got to be able to sign up soon enough on it. And then I've got my other sponsors. I've got High Five Gear, and I've got uh, um, Vice, and oh, oh, the other one. I've got uh, Vice, Vice Grips. And then I've got uh, Dexter shoes. So got all the best equipment in the world and it keeps me going. And hopefully uh, my body hangs in there. Being 60 years old has its, I do have my moments of uh, not, <laughs> of, of my body's not as good as it used to be, but uh, I'm still upright. So, Well, you look great to us, man. You're still out there competing. You're still killing it. Just last year you were. Well, I don't know about killing it, but. Uh, you were laughing the field in the Raza, man. I saw it first. Well. <laughs> <laughs> unfortunately i need that to be you know somewhere else but that was okay that was a fun tournament i, I did have fun with that uh, it was well, fun being able to compete with the young guys a little bit that was nice when the, when the tour gets back going again and life gets back to normal i'd love to see one more victory lap walter ray in the winner's circle there on the regular national tour man we'd love to see that uh, i'd love that too but it's been 10 years so i i kind of think that may have been passed but uh up I, I plan on bowling maybe a couple tournaments next year. I, I think my uh, time on the regular tour full-time has come to an end. I, I, uh, I don't need to get as frustrated as I did this year. And it just economically doesn't make any sense. You know, if uh, it just, you know, unless, unless my game really improves in the next, next six, seven months. And I, you know, unfortunately I, I don't work at it enough to, to get to that spot. I just don't see that happening, but I, I'll probably bowl a couple of events here, a couple of majors maybe, and that's probably it. 
Well, I hope you find lightning in a bottle, brother. I hope it happens. Well, thank you. Appreciate it. All right, Walter. Well, uh, thanks so much again for joining us today. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks, Walter. Thank you. So there you have it, man. Walter Ray Williams Jr. I mean, one of the most modest guys you'd ever meet. I mean, who's the greatest bowler of all time? Earl Anthony, he says, right? Okay. I get it. I get it. Earl, 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 you know, retired early and his, his, you can't argue with what Walter said today. Right. And I wanted to hit him back with, well, who's the greatest right-handed bowler of all time, <laughs> but I didn't really want to put him on the spot like that, you know, but you know, as I've mentioned twice now, and I'll say it a third time, I'm a big Pete Weber fan. And I think Pete Weber's got the most natural ability that's ever been given to, to, to a man ever in the history of bowling. And Belmo might surpass that. He's very close. Um, but Walter Ray is, is, is the guy who simplified the game, went about it as a business and went out and just took care of business week after week, year after year accuracy and repeating shots. He even said when he was popping out of shots, yeah, well, I was able to do that every single time. And that just speaks to bowling. You don't have to bowl a certain way to be great at our sport. You have to repeat shots. You have to do the same thing every time. Release ball speed, accuracy, and the way that you finish at the line. Like Those, those are the things that are most important. And Walter, arguably or maybe not even arguably, is the greatest of all time at repeating shots. Yeah. I mean, you said it best, Mike, and I just hope you take your own advice there with that little speech the next time that you hit that. This show alone should help raise your average 25 pins from like 173, was it last year, your book average, 173? Uh, negatory, sir. <laughs> Man, what a great – but. Dude, what an incredible story he has, too, of how he was using horseshoes to finance his way through college, mm -hmm. get out on the PBA tour. He was patient enough. And I love the confidence that he had, too. He was like, all right, well, I'll have a horseshoe tournament next weekend. That'll that'll get me that'll get me some money. And it's, that's like saying, like, oh, I got a work shift. I got work next weekend, uh, so I'll get some money. He's like, oh, yeah, I'm just going to win. So that'll keep me going for a little bit. Um, but it's really cool to see all the things that he's accomplished, how humble he is. And. I also didn't know Mike. I've never heard the saying. You've got a memory like an elephant. I've oh yeah. That. Yep, memory that, like an elephant. elephants have good memories. Yes, they do. They do. Mm. Interesting. Did not know that. Well, it's it's cool to see. He, um, dude was spitting facts for fifty minutes straight of just mind blowing stuff. Brad Handelman from KR was the one that was texting me during the show, and 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 he was the one that said the thing about Stout, and 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 here's what he followed up with. He said. Uh, Hard enough to remember your own stats from 40 years ago. He remembers Mike Stouts. <laughs> it's just, and I think that's so. one of the reasons why he's so great. I mean, that that memory, that mental capacity to be focused enough to pay attention to those things and remember them 40 years later. I mean, his ability to stay focused and, like I said, not miss a single pin spare for 18 years straight. I mean, it's just incredible. Yeah, it's funny too because you know Walter was probably the number one uh, guy that was excited about a smartphone because they made these apps where you could track all your stats while you're bowling. And if you ever watch him bowl a, a tournament, he's got out his smartphone and he's tracking every frame. Like he knows all his stats. Yeah. Every frame. Yeah. You know, you said it in the, to start the show that, um, you know, Marshall Holman came out. We couldn't get that guy to get on this platform. I'm not surprised that it took Walter 20 seconds to get up on the stream yard thing and get it running. No, and he's probably pissed that his earbuds didn't work when we first brought him. Oh, off. you could tell yeah. he was a little fried. He was like, Oh my God, he threw the, Threw him across the oh, room. he's like Rob Stone when we had Rob Stone on, couldn't get anything to work. So. 
the brightest people we've had on the program have had some sort of tech issue right when they come on the air. Well, uh, uh, look, I mean, I would probably put Walter as one of the brightest people and, and Rob, but you might be making some previous guests unhappy here. By well, that's okay. That's okay. It's all right. As long as you're willing to take a flight. Mike's back in the hot seat, everybody. He got off it for oh, about yeah, a week and a half. Got to be. Got to be. Well, thanks for watching, everybody. And hopefully because we had a show today that, that you're okay with us having a show today. Um, we did consider canceling, like I said, but hopefully we uh, we brought the spirits up for about an hour with our great guest, uh, greatest bowler of all time, Walter Ray Williams Jr. And tomorrow we have Andrew Anderson on the program. We're going to spend some time with Andrew diving into uh, his player of the year and his ups and downs and his battles and everything that he's been doing uh, since quarantine. And 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 we're going to we're going to put him through the through the gauntlet here tomorrow. So we're looking forward to that. Yeah, uh, Andrew's got uh, an obsession with uh, Chick-fil-A sauce, so we'll certainly get into a little Chick-fil-A discussion with him. Um, see, you know, they now sell those Chick-fil-A sauces in uh, supermarkets, so we'll see if uh, Andrew actually goes out and purchases those um, on his own, aside from Chick-fil-A. Okay, sounds good. Well, Matt, it was a pleasure today, brother. Uh, stay safe out there. We want all of our fans to stay safe out there, and uh, we will see you tomorrow with Andrew Anderson. Uh, thanks for watching again, everybody.